This is LAC Online Church in Perry, Ohio. We exist to love God and love people. For more information about our church or ministry activities, please visit LakeErieChurch.com. Now here's today's message. The time that we started the How to Pray series back in January, and we did five weeks of that, How to Pray, and if you have not followed through with those and have not had a chance to hear them, you can always go back to our podcast uh, and you can follow those. The audio of those are posted every week, usually by Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday of the week, and you can follow. But all through that prayer series, I was asking God this question, where do we go next? After we have learned how to pray, after we have learned to elevate our prayer life, where do we go next? And I could not get away from this question. And here's the question. What does it mean to experience God? What does it mean to experience God? You and I are meticulously created with an extraordinary ability to relate to God, to walk and talk with God, to commune with Him. Unlike any other created being on the planet, You and I have a created ability and a God desire to relate to our creator. We can talk to him as we talked about in January. We can literally talk to God. And yet one of the big concerns that I have is that every week we come into this room, the atmosphere is almost always electric. The music is good. The fellowship is good. Before church, you hear the interactions of people as they talk to each other and, and, and embrace and, and share their stories. And I worry that sometimes we don't understand that there is a vast difference in coming to church and experiencing God. It's like the difference in knowing what ice cream is and eating it. I mean, a lot of people come to church, but they don't experience God. Some of you come to church because you feel guilty if you don't come to church. Some of you are watching me right now in the back of your head. The only reason you tuned in is you heard your mama telling you, you better go to church, boy. So you didn't want to get out of bed. You just turned the church on while you were there. But, but there's, a, there's, there's such a need for us, I believe, such a desire in my heart that we not just come into this room and sing a bunch of songs and hang out with our friends and encourage each other with our words, but that we literally experience the living God. That that we have an experience with God and not just a prayer, but a real life experience that we say with confidence, I'm walking with God, I'm talking with God, I'm living in His presence and I know who God is and God knows who I am. I told you earlier, I drove down to Columbus for a meeting our church had down in Columbus. And as I was driving back that night and I was talking to God about our time today and our time this week, this month, the presence of God just began to feel in that car. And I began to encounter the living God and experience His presence. And it was very, very powerful. The difference in that would be just to go through the motions to understand religious practice, you know, to know when to stand, when to sit down, when to clap your hands. 
You know, I went to a, I went to a liturgical worship service not too long ago, and it'd been a long time since I'd been uh, in a liturgical worship service, and and I didn't know I didn't know the routine. I, I was telling Pastor Dustin I didn't know what I was supposed to do when I was supposed to do it, and, and it, you know there there's a when you're visiting in a different environment, it's really awkward if everybody knows what to do and you don't. You're standing up when you're supposed to be sitting down, and you're sitting down when you're supposed to be standing up. And so there was a wonderful lady on the same pew with me, and I just followed whatever she did. I don't know if it's right, but whatever she did, I did. That's not what I want for us. I don't want you to just come in here and follow the instructions and stand up and sit down and kneel and clap your hands. and No, I don't want that. I want you to experience God. I want your relationship with God to be so personal that you know Him and that He knows you. And so this passage that Billy read out of Ephesians helps me because it provokes me. As I've been reading it now for weeks and weeks, it's a, it's a passage that provokes me and I want to I show it to you because I think it helps us to understand what it means to truly experience God and what God wants for each and every one of us. Let me begin with two statements to help you understand where I'm going. Experiencing God is like a good friend. Maybe you have a good friend. I have four really good friends. We've been friends our whole life. If the Lord tarries, we'll all preach each other's funerals and and we, we hang out together every time we're together. It was just not too long ago we were in San Antonio together and we went, we always do because we're, we're friends. We pick up wherever we are because we're all spread out. One lives in Europe and, and another one lives in Tennessee and another one lives in North Carolina and, we, and one lives in Washington State. And we're all just spread out. And, and, and experiencing God is like a good friend. And here's what I mean. A good friend knows everything there is to know about you and likes you anyway. Isn't that the way God is? He already knows everything there is to know about you and likes you anyway. That's what experiencing God is, is that, that He knows us and loves us and he's like a good friend. Experiencing God is not only like a good friend, but experiencing God is like a godly mother or father. You ever, did you have one of those? Do you have a godly mother, godly father? I thought about this a few days ago, and I was writing this down trying to explain it. You know, your mother was never fooled by the games that you played with other people. Now, my mother... If your mother was like mine, she loved everything I did. I mean, she thought everything I did was great. It drove my siblings crazy. But, he know, but, but like my mother, God knows me too well to be fooled by my public face. He knows me. He knows what I'm putting on. He knows when I'm misbehaving. And yet, like our mothers, He is universally interested in what we have to say, what we are doing, what we are worried about, no matter how silly it is to other people. And God is like our mother in the fact that He's encouraging and proud of us because He's always proud of what we are and who we are. 
He's always excited for us, always believes the best. In my first church, we had a, a woman there by the name of, uh, of Edna Land was her name. And Edna had three, three boys. Let me just put it that way. Hellions. Rough as a cob. I remember one time I went out to visit Edna at her house and I was driving up this long dirt road off the main highway, Paul. And as I began to get close, I noticed, I think that guy's got a gun pointed right at me. And sure enough, one of the boys had his gun just laid right up on me there, you know. I thought, okay, I, uh, I'm here to pray for a sick mama, but this may be my last prayer. We got a little closer. I was going slower, and I... All of a sudden, I heard his mother say, Get that gun down. That's the preacher. He dropped the gun. I'm so sorry, preacher. I didn't know who you were. I think he thought I was a revenue or, or a law enforcement officer or something. You know, One of those boys beat up a police officer one night with a ball bat. She called me at 4 o'clock in the morning and said, Oh, preacher's crying for a preacher. You know, Willie's over here in the jail, and I'm getting some money together for his bail. Could you meet me over there? Oh, I'd been to that jail so much that they knew me by name. Those boys were always in jail. And I don't know why I said it. You know, sometimes you just say stuff you're thinking, you don't think it through. It's four in the morning. I said, Sister Land, don't you think it'd be a good thing to let him spend the night in jail? And that weeping voice turned into a different voice and said, Let me tell you something, preacher. That's my boy over there in that jail. You can either meet me over there or you can, or you can just hang up. Yes, ma'am, I'm on my way. I'm coming. God, God is always on your side. Like a good mother, he's always on your side. And, and so when we think about what it means to experience God, I think this passage really speaks. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through it. Now I'm going to give you a heads up that I'm not going to follow the scripture just in a linear way. I just decided because I was the one doing the speaking, I was going to flip it over. We're going to start in the middle and go to the bottom and then come back to the top at the end. But if you've got your Bibles open to Ephesians 2, you'll see it on the screen. They're going to put it up there as we go. But let me give you three sentences, three statements that are so very true about experiencing God. Here's the first one. We experience God through His presence and his power. We experience God through his presence and his power. Notice what Paul said in the passage beginning with verse 21. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. And seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heavenly realms. And notice the last sentence. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. What I'm saying, what I think Paul is saying is that we start experiencing God when we begin to grasp how powerful God really is. Because there is no power in all the world that compares with the power of God. Notice what he said. He is far above all rulers, all authority, all power, any leader or anything else. 
Because when we talk about God, He is powerful and there is nothing more powerful than God. And here's the thing to remember. There is nobody that can make Him powerful. He doesn't need anybody to make Him powerful. He's powerful because He is. In fact, the logic would be if there's anybody that can make God greater than He is, that person's greater than God. Because there is no person, Paul said, that is above him. He is powerful on his own. And sometimes that's difficult, isn't it? Difficult to understand. But just walk through the scripture with me for a second. He's powerful because he created everything by his spoken word. At creation, did you just notice in the story of creation how many times he just spoke things into existence? Let there be light. And there was light and darkness changed to light. The things that he said by his spoken word. In the book of Acts, the Bible said he sustains. He sustains everything in the universe. Now that is so, that's mind-boggling when you think about everything that's happening. I can't even sustain everything at my house. God sustains everything in the universe. Over eight billion people on the face of the earth. He sustains all of them. And Jesus said about him that the lilies of the field and the grass are all sustained by a God that doesn't lose sight of a single bird that falls. That's how powerful he is. He knows every person on the planet by name. He knows the number of hair on everybody's head. Easier for some than others. And the book of Revelation says that one day, now get this, a couple years ago, Pastor Tracy and I, we, we did this whole thing on Revelation, and we taught about the fact that one day, this God who is so powerful will grab the devil and all of his angels and put them in the bottomless pit. There's no comparison between God and the devil. You know, when, when I was growing up, I used to think, okay, here's evil, here's good, and they fight against each other. No way. No way. God's way up here and the devil's way down here. And all the power that the devil has is power that God gave him. He doesn't have any power of his own. He doesn't have any authority. In fact, when Job was being tempted, how did the devil get involved with Job? God gave the devil permission. You get that? The devil couldn't even do it on his own. He had to have God's help. He created everything. He sustains everything. And the Bible said, according to Paul here, that God's power was on full display in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you think of anybody who has ever lived on the face of the earth? Any leader, any figure in history that ever died and came back to life. But Jesus did. Now, if you want to know why God did this, let me explain very carefully to you that death was the result of sin. God never intended for you and I to die. We were created, Adam and Eve were created to be eternal people, to live forever. But because of sin, sin came into the world. And because sin was in the world, then death became a, 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 a part of the existence of humanity. So people died. And death was a stranglehold on us 
Because there was a finality to that. There was this end, this, this fact that we would die. And Jesus came to earth as a human being, lived as we lived, was put on a cross and then placed in a tomb. And on Easter morning, the Bible said, he was raised up from the grave by the power of God. What kind of power does God have that he could raise another person up out of the grave? Because it is the power of God, Paul said, the great power of God that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. What it simply means is that you serve a God, you can experience a God who has the power over death, hell, and the grave. Now I don't normally, as a general rule, read this much scripture, but I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to take enough time to read this, because this is so important for you to understand this God that we are experiencing, it won't be on the screen, so you'll need to listen or follow in your Bible or your mobile device. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last night as I was sitting there in the final moments of putting this, this last pieces together, I began to read this and God began to speak into my heart. Now let's read it together in verse 12. So Paul's talking now to the Corinthians and there have been some people that have come by that said, you people that believe in the resurrection, you, you're nuts. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And they preached against people that preached about the resurrection of Jesus. The apostles were in fact apostles because they were witnesses that Jesus was alive after Calvary. That's how they became an apostle. Because they were eyewitnesses of that. And so Paul is trying to help the Corinthian church who's dealing with these teachers that are coming by saying, if you believe in the resurrection, there is no resurrection. That when you die, it's over. Notice verse 12. Now if Christ is preached, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ was raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Moreover, if we, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses because we testified that God raised Christ, whom he did, if he did not raise, in fact, then the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ was raised. The same thing he said two verses earlier. If the dead are not resurrected, then even Christ wasn't resurrected. And I wrote in my Bible, all of our faith stands on that verse right there. He goes on to say in verse 17, but if Christ is raised, if, and, and if Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sin. In other words, if there's no resurrection, you're still a sinner. And there's no, you're, there's no reason for your faith. Nothing happens to your faith because you... There was no resurrection. Then he goes on in 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, your loved ones are gone forever. Verse 19. But if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. Then skip over and pick it up in verse 50. There's a whole lot more here. Paul talks a lot about the difference in a heavenly body and an and a, and a earthly body. And he talks about why an earthly body cannot inherit the kingdom of God and those kind of things. But pick it up in verse 50. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable will put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul said, listen, there's coming a moment when the trumpet of God sounds and this resurrection of all those saints is going to take place. And as they're coming out of the ground, it will be said, death, where is your sting? You see, for history, all of history, people have passed away and died. And the enemy has said, that's the it. That's it. But it's not it. Jesus went to Calvary and purchased eternal life for everyone that would believe in him. And then when he was placed in that grave, he did not stay there. In three days, he came out of that grave by the power, the mighty power of God. Death could not hold him. The enemy could not hold him. But by the mighty power of God. Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad we serve a powerful God this morning? We experience God through His power and His presence. Last Sunday during the worship, if you were here as a part of that service, you probably remember the presence of God, how strong the, the presence of God was because God's presence began to fill this place and where God's presence is, there is power to do miracles and signs and wonders and deliverance. We experience God through His power and His presence. Here's the second one. We experience God in community with other believers. We experience God through our interactions with other believers. Notice what Paul says in verse 23 of that original passage in Ephesians 2. I'm sorry we're bouncing you around, but that'll be on the screen. Verse 23, at the center of all this, Paul says, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he feels everything with his presence. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that after Jesus, after God, there isn't anything on this earth more powerful than God's church. Nothing more powerful than God's church. And the church, he says, sits in the middle of the world. And all of the world is subject to the church. He's telling you, the church isn't subject to the world. We're not driven by what the world thinks. The world is supposed to be driven by what the church thinks. What the church is doing. How the church is responding. And when I say church, let me just explain. I'm not talking about Lake Erie Church. I'm not talking about St. Anne's here in town. I'm not talking about Crossroads Community Church. 
I'm not talking about here's hope. They're all part. They're all pieces of the community of faith. When I talk about the church, I'm talking about the universal church. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never stop the church. He was talking about a church that's made up of every believer before and after us. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every person that names the name of God is his church. These silly people that go around saying, you know, if you don't go to our church, you're not part of the church. They are not telling the truth. There are many different churches, many different groups of people. We may argue about theology. We may think you're supposed to stand or sit at a particular time, but that's not a part of his church. That's a man's doing. That's man's thinking. That's man's philosophy in that. The church I'm talking about is the church of the living God that Jesus gave his life for, made up of every person who names the name of God, every person that has been that has lived before and after us a universal church. And that church, listen to me, that church is not a building. That church is not a tribe or a denomination. That is a church made up of every living person who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's possible. That you could be a member of Lake Erie Church and not a part of his church. You could be a part of a great church and not be a part of his church. You know how I know that? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, he said, People are going to come to me in the judgment and they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord. In your name we have cast out devils. In other words, we've been associated with your church. We've done the work of the church everywhere. And Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. You did stuff in my name, but I didn't know you. And that's the point I'm trying to make this morning. That each of us has to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be personally involved in experiencing the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read your Bible every day and be lost. You can pay your tithes. You can give to the poor. You can do charitable work and you'll be lost because your heart does not belong to Him. You have no relationship, no experience with God. Listen. Listen to me, students. I love you. I love watching you worship today. I leaned over to your youth pastor and told him how inspired I get watching you worship. But you cannot go to heaven on your mama or your daddy's faith. You have to have your own relationship with God. You have to experience God for yourself. You experience God in community with other believers. And this is the concern that I have for us. We continue to grow. People are coming. Folks are being saved. Thank God for it. But if you don't have a personal relationship, it's more than just saying a prayer. It's more than signing a card. It's more than walking an aisle. It's more than joining the church. It's more than getting into a baptistry. You've got to experience God. You've got to have a relationship with God that allows you to be completely and totally His.
I think sometimes that people think that all they have to do is say a prayer and they're good. But it is altogether possible. It is altogether possible that we miss the point when we do not realize that God requires us to forsake everything and serve Him. You can't be His if you're still doing the things you were doing before you became His. The very word of repentance, what it means to repent, means that you are renouncing your sin. You are moving away from your sin. And it's not about judgment. It's about understanding that God has called us to a different life. We have been called out of the darkness, Peter said, into His marvelous light. And we are a part of a living, breathing body in this world. And God has established His church in the world to be His representative. In fact, I said to a group of pastors in Arkansas a few weeks ago, I said, I believe with all of my heart that the local church is the tool and instrument God will use to bring the message of salvation to a lost community. And the reason I believe that, not that I am discounting any other offices in, the, in, in Scripture, but what I believe by that is that you come in here and God blesses you and you go out there and you become His representative in the world. The people on your job, the people in your school, the people that you know, they see Jesus in you. You become a part of what this local church and other great local churches in our community are doing to manifest and bring the message of Jesus to a lost world. Before I get to that last one, I want to tell you this to you because it's so strong in my heart. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say Bill Isaacs is going to build my church. Didn't say that. He said, I'll build the church. And every once in a while, the Lord has to remind me of this. I'm not building this church. He's the one building this church. And if it's not being built, it could be that we're in the way of God doing his work. He wants to build this church. He will build his church. And then he said, he didn't say, I'm going to build Bill Isaacs a church not my church I'm not trying to be hard or difficult about it but it's not it's not your church either I mean you may pay your tithes here you may be a part of what we're doing but it's not your church you didn't die for it it's his church we just work in his vineyard we're just working in his field to do the work of ministry so that he will say well done good and faithful servant and then he said the gates of hell will not prevail well the, the significance there he, of course he says this in the town of Caesarea Philippi, the Greek nickname, the, the Greek word meaning gate of hell. So in the city of Caesarea Philippi, the gate of hell, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail. What he's telling you is the church will be unstoppable. You hear what I'm saying? The church of the living God is unstoppable. Communism can't stop it. Dictators can't stop it. In fact, I was reading not too long ago about a, uh, in Cuba. Uh, in, in, uh, in Cuba, they put a, as a Baptist preacher there that was arrested for preaching the gospel. And he was placed in one of the prisons there that Castro had. Uh, and, and while he was there, he started preaching and teaching the gospel. And he came to the, 
the warden or the, the guard or whatever, and he said, listen, can I requisition something? They said, well, what is it you need? He said, I'd like to requisition a 55-gallon drum with the top cut out of it. And the guy said, what in the world do you need a 55-gallon drum with the, the top cut out of it? He said, I've been preaching, and I've got some new converts, and I want to baptize them in water behind the bars in a jail. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have to be in a building with padded seats to be in the house of God. You don't have to be in a place where, where there's steeples to be in the house of God, where the name of Jesus is being preached, where Jesus is being glorified. That's his church. That's his church. And that church is unstoppable. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not a young guy anymore. I've been preaching for over four decades, and I used to preach that verse wrong, Jason, for years and years and years. I preached that word like it was a defensive word. The gates of hell will not prevail. I used to preach it like the devil can't break through the wall that God has set for us. The wall is there, and the devil can't break through. And one day I was praying, and I'm like, like the Lord said, what wall? What, what, what wall is the devil trying to get through? No, it's the other way. That verse is the other way. It's you marching into the gates of hell and the devil with the wall up and he can't stop you because the power and the anointing of God on your life is so strong that the church of the living God cannot be stopped. It can't be stopped. And there have been people that have tried over the years, politicians and legislatures and all, have tried to stop and every time they do, God's church just goes. It just goes. In 1976, there were one million believers in China. One million in a communist country that does not allow them to worship. That Many of them worship in house churches in a silent church. But I read just the other day that statistics now say there's over 76 million believers in China. Why? Because the gates of hell cannot stop the church of the living God. No matter who the despot is, no matter who the leader is, there is a church that Jesus Christ died for. And that church is unstoppable. Somebody praise the Lord with me for that. We experience God through His power and His purpose. We experience God through the community with other believers. And we experience God through His purpose and His will. We experience God through His purpose and His will. Notice what He says here. Verse 17. Now we're all the way back to the top of that verse. He said, I ask the God of our Master Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing Him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what He is calling you to do. Grasping the immensity of this glorious way of life that He has for followers and oh, the utter extravagance of His work in us who trust Him. I could preach the rest of today and tomorrow on this passage, but just listen here. Notice what he says. He says that he's praying that believers will possess wisdom and discernment in order to know God personally. It's this idea that a human being, Kurt Zenesek, Jason Saunders, can know God personally. Nobody has to pray for you. Nobody has to intercede for you. Jesus is already doing it. But you can know Him personally. 
One of my favorite verses in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. He said, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. What is he saying? We, you and me, we can walk into the very throne of grace to God and ask God for help. We can know him personally because it is God's purpose that we know that. And he said, I'm praying that you will have the wisdom and the discernment to know this. That you can have a personal relationship with God. Sophia, when you go to school tomorrow, you can have a personal relationship with God in school. Steve Erickson, when you go about your business this week, running the various businesses that you run, you can have a personal relationship with and it, it blows the mind to realize that with over 8 billion people on the face of the earth, he wants a personal relationship with every one of them. The other day I went to Aldi's in Minner. Some of you probably know Polka works there. And uh, I was in Polka's line. She was running the cash register there. And, you know, you know Polka's not afraid to talk to people. Well, it takes a little longer in Polka's line because she needs to encourage people. And I'm just looking at all these people in that store. And I thought to myself, he died for everybody in this store. He loves everybody in this store. He wants a personal relationship with every person in this store. 200, over 200,000 residents in Lake County and he wants a personal relationship with every one of them. 11 million people live in the state of Ohio. He wants a personal relationship with every one of them. Almost 400 million Americans. And he wants a relationship with every one of them. And it doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. The people in Honduras, 8 million Hondurans that live in the country of Honduras, he wants a personal relationship with Spanish-speaking, English-speaking, Slovakian-speaking people. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you are. He wants a relationship with you. And then he says, I'm praying that you will be able to have clarity and focus about what God is ultimately calling you to do with your life. Every person, every person in this room, there is a call of God on your life. You know, for, for too long we have assumed that this calling was just for preachers or pastors. No, it is not. Some of you are called of God to be Christian businessmen. Some of you are called to be amazing uh, home uh, house, uh, housewives, homeschool teachers. Some of you teach in the public school, teach in the, in the private sector, public sector. You're called of God to be a teacher. You're called of God to do the work that is in your hand. How would you know that? How do you know if you're called to do what it is you're doing? I've always said this. I've had literally, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people ask me about the will of God. And I've always tried to say the same thing. And this is what I tell you. The will of God for your life is personal, meaning that it's, it's God's will for your life. It's not, it's not God's will for somebody else. God has something for you, a personal will of God. Not only is it personal, but it's private. 
And what I mean by that is God is not talking to anybody on the face of this earth about His plans for your life until He talks to you first. Here's how you can tell if, if God is speaking. Somebody walks up and says, oh, I've got a word from the Lord for you. You know how you can tell? Because it's something God's already told you. God's not the author of confusion. And then thirdly, it's provable. Personal, private, provable. Provable in the sense that it makes sense. Now listen, if you can't sing a lick, God is not calling you to sing. And if you can't manage your allowance, He's not calling you to be a banker. See, the will of God makes sense. What do you have a talent for? What do you have an ability for? There's a young girl in our church here who's an incredible artist. It's altogether possible. Maybe that's what God wants her to do with her life. I'm not saying that it is, but I'm just suggesting that if she were to come to me and say, Pastor, I believe that God has called me to be a Christian artist, I would go, yep, I can see that. It makes sense. But God has a personal will, and He says, I want you to understand that. That, that there's clarity and focus in your life. Some of you are struggling because you don't know what you're supposed to do with your life. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And you're struggling. Listen, I can tell you this, and this has been my struggle. God's will for your life is not a secret. God's not holding it behind his back going, one of these days, I'm going to tell you. You just keep being a good little boy. One of these days, there you go, there's a little bit right there. Just so, No, he doesn't do that. He wants you to know His will. But in order for you to know what God wants you to do, you have to have an experience with God. You have to experience God and His power and His grace and His mercy. You have to walk and talk with God so that God can speak into your life and tell you what you're supposed to do. And then the third and final thing that he says, he said, I want you to understand. He said, I pray that you'll have clarity and focus, but I also pray that you can see the extravagant work of God that is in your life. I think Paul wants to close by telling them, listen, God's always been at work in you. Some of you have served the Lord when you were younger and then you stepped away. You thought you needed to chase something. You had some friends that were out partying and you thought that was the way to go and you ran out there with them. Only to find out that it was an empty pursuit and it didn't work and now you've come back. What Paul wants you to understand is that even when you were out there, even when you were going your way, God was still at work in your life. God was still doing an extravagant work in your life. When I was just a little boy, my wonderful mother taught me this verse, and I have used it my whole life. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your path. You say, Brother Isaac, my life has just really gone crazy. It's, 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 it's been a wild ride. Yeah, I'm sure it has. And what you discover out there is that it never works out, does it? It's always empty. You can't drink enough. You can't shoot enough. You can't sit in front of a screen and watch enough pornography. You're never going to find it out there. You're never going to find it in the things of the world. You're never going to have enough. Some of you are chasing, I need a bigger car, I need a bigger house, i got to have more stuff. You'll never find it. 
But as soon as you get those things, you'll want something else because there's something on the inside of you that's never been satisfied. And you're chasing after elusive things. And Paul says, I want you to understand the extravagant work of God that is going on in your life. So let me finish with this. And Pastor Jerome, come prepared. Prayer team, be ready in just a moment. I was thinking the other day about the woman in John 8. I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but just listen. There was a woman in John 8. Jesus was there, and the Pharisees were always trying to capture Jesus and trap him, and so they drug this woman into the court with him. And they said to Jesus, this woman, has, we caught her having sex with a man that was not her husband. And according to the law of Moses, which of course you know the law of Moses, Jesus, the law of Moses says that we are supposed to stone her. And Jesus said, in that infamous exchange, he said to him, I'm okay with you stoning her. You're right. She deserves to be stoned. So here's how we'll do it. We'll start with any person who has not committed sin. We'll let them throw the first stone. Any of you that have never had a sin, never made a mistake in your life, you get to throw the first stone. You deserve that right. You throw the first stone. And the Bible said, convicted of their own conscience. One by one, they just left. There's nobody left now but her and Jesus. And Jesus says to her, where are the accusers? And she said, I don't have any. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I know a lot of people have stumbled over the years with that. I've, I've, I've heard a lot of different treatments of that. I'm not claiming that mine is the right one. I'm just telling you how I feel in my heart when I read it. I almost feel like what it means, what Jesus means to this woman is to say this. I want so much more for you. I have such high hopes for your life. You're never going to find it in these things you're pursuing. So go live the life you're supposed to live. Go live in the freedom that I've given you to live. Stop chasing things that can't make you happy. And live the life I think that's the way God talks to all of us. He sees us chasing all this stuff, going after all this stuff. And his heart says, you're never going to be happy. I'm offering you an experience. You can trust me, and I'll give you an experience that will change your life. You say to me, Pastor, I... I don't know if I can do it. No. Let me me help you. You can't. You can't do it by yourself. But that's the good news. He said, I'll do it with you. Five words that he said to Moses. I will be with you. And that's all you need. That's all you need. You can walk and talk with Jesus every day. You can say to God, I don't know how to raise my kids, and he'll say, I'll help you. I don't know how to pay my bills, he said, I'll help you. I don't know how to keep my marriage 
in the right place, I'll help you. But you you got to want me. Well, every head bowed and every eye closed. I know I've spoken much longer than I normally do. But I can't tell you how passionately I feel about Lake Erie Church being made up of people who have a genuine encounter with God. I don't want to just be a church full of people that make noise. I want to be a part of a church that makes a difference in the world. I want the love of God to be so full in our hearts that when we go to work tomorrow, people sense it and experience it. I want to do two things. If you're in the room this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you you don't have an experience with God. You don't have a relationship with God because you've never given your life to Him. You've never chosen Jesus as Savior. I want to pray a simple prayer with you. I want to get you started. I was so excited. Some of you that got saved last Sunday are already in the middle of our seven-day journey. I've I've loved interacting with you this week. We want you to know we love you. We're ready to help you. We're going to pray a very simple prayer, and after we pray this prayer, I've got one more thing I want to do. So everybody repeat this prayer after me. Listen, listen if you don't know Jesus, this, this prayer, are, they're just words, but if you mean them, they become something very personal to you. So would you repeat this prayer after me? God, I am a sinner. I am sorry for my sins. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe Jesus will forgive me of my sins. So I choose Jesus. Thank you for listening. Lake Erie Church is a multicultural Pentecostal church located in Perry, Ohio, about 30 minutes east of Cleveland. We would love to have you for a visit sometime. For more information or to connect with our team, please visit lakeeriechurch.com.